Good morning. It's good to see you all. My name is Ryan Berry. I have the privilege of serving you as one of the pastoral assistants here. It's my honor to bring you the word this morning. Growing up in the state of Oklahoma, there are two kinds of people. There are only two kinds of people. I'm not referencing anything trivial like, are you an Oklahoma City person or a Tulsa person? Do you drive a Ford or do you drive a Chevy? Are you an OU fan or are you an OSU fan? Those are very trivial compared to how you answer this question. Where are you when a tornado is coming for your house? (laughs) Are you in the storm shelter? Are you in the innermost interior room with no load-bearing walls and no windows? Or are you on the front porch (laughs) with a glass of tea in your hand? You can only answer that one of two ways. There's no middle ground. I can't tell you how many times growing up during tornado season in Oklahoma where Gary Englund would come on News 9 and he'd say, Seminole County, there's a storm coming, you better seek shelter. And as soon as those words ring out, you can look out the window and like clockwork, it's like moles are coming out of their holes. (laughs) There's there to watch. We can all admit that of those two choices, there is a much as we hate to admit it, a clearly wise course of action, a clearly unwise course of action. One party is preparing to hide themselves in a suitable refuge. The other party is presuming upon their safety in the midst of a raging storm. This morning, we're going to be studying Psalm 29. If you can go ahead and make your way there this morning. You can find it on page 461 in the Red Pewback Bible in front of you. Just a note, if you do not have a Bible, we would love for that to be our gift to you this morning. Please take that with you and read it, meditate on it, ask questions about it. That's our gift to you. If you'll turn with me to Psalm 29, what we'll do is I'll read the the passage for us, and then I'll pray, I'll ask God for his help in understanding and applying that passage, and then we'll begin. This is the word of the Lord, Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Sarayan like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry, Glory. 
The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. This is God's word. Praise be to God. Let's pray now. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. You have established strength because of your foes to still your enemies. Lord, when we look at the work of your fingers, we must ask, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? God, we praise you for your strength and your salvation that you so freely equip and bless your people with. And we pray now that as we approach your holy word that you would cause by your Holy Spirit new life, new growth, new mercies to be seen, new strength to be felt. We also pray that in your kindness you would silence the evil one who desperately wishes to remove all of our hope and our confidence and our obedience. Help us, Lord, to ascribe all glory, honor, and praise to your name. For you alone are doing. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this psalm begins in the halls of heaven. Heavenly beings are there paying homage to God in the splendor of his holiness. From here, we move to see the celebration of God's mighty strength evidenced or pictured in an awe-inspiring storm. The storm ravages the coast's And forests of Canaan beginning on the Mediterranean Sea, you see in verse 3, making landfall, verses 4 to 6 in Lebanon, spreading to Mount Hermon, that's what Sirion is referencing there, verse 6, and then ending in the wilderness of Kadesh, verse 8. And as the storm breaks and the thunderclaps begin to halt, we see the Lord himself appear on a throne. This psalm helps us to see that God is enthroned over both judgment and salvation. Judgment for all who fail to bend the knee and ascribe to Him the glory that is due His name. Salvation for all who are called according to His electing love. All of those who are found in Christ. Charles Spurgeon wrote of Psalm 29, Just as Psalm 8 is to be read by moonlight when the stars are bright, and just as Psalm 19 needs the rays of the rising sun to bring out its beauty, so this psalm can be best rehearsed beneath the black wing of a tempest. By the glare of the lightning, indeed, listen here, these verses march to the tune of thunderbolts. David is meaning to convince his audience that God alone is king of the storm. He means for us to recognize and act in accordance with the worthiness of God to be praised. Some scholars look at Psalm 29 and suggest that it could have been adapted from an even more ancient hymn used in Baal worship. Some who practiced idolatry considered Baal to be the god of the storm or the god of lightning. And so some scholars would see this as a kind of polemic, right, or a kind of critical attack against this heresy, declaring that not Baal, but Yahweh alone 
the Lord, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, which is repeated 18 times in this psalm. He alone is the one true God over all creation. He's the Lord of heaven and earth and judgment and salvation. This psalm is meant to destroy any false notion that would declare that God is not in control of everything all the time. If you're looking for a main idea from this sermon, I'd argue that it's this. The main idea is simply glorify the king. Two reasons why. Glorify the king because he's strong and because he saves. That'll serve as our outline this morning. There's only one main point this morning. Glorify the king. We see that in verses 1 and 2. And then we're given by David two reasons why we ought to glorify the king. The first is this. He's strong. Look at verses 3 to 9 and you'll see that he's strong. The second reason we glorify the king. He saves. Verses 10 and 11. Let's begin now by considering our primary point this morning, glorify the king. I'm going to reread verses 1 and 2 for us. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. If you look at the first half of verse 1, you'll notice something interesting about the original audience of this psalm. King David has addressed this psalm not to Israel, not to even God himself, not to the choir master, but he's addressed it to the hosts of heaven. We have, by God's marvelous wisdom, been made able to glean instruction and encouragement from David's exhortation to angels. We're reading a letter this morning whose message was received and obeyed in the very throne room of heaven. David is issuing a command to angels, exhorting them to join him in offering praise and glory to God. The Hebrew word here translated heavenly beings literally means sons of God. This phrase can be understood a couple of different ways from our text. So just a quick note. There are 13 citations to the universal flood of Noah in the Old Testament. There are 13. Twelve of those citations are in Genesis 6 to 11, in the flood narrative and the passages surrounding them. The 13th citation is found, you guessed it, verse 10 of Psalm 29. The Lord sits enthroned over what? The flood, like the flood. That's what he means. So some would see that unique reference to the flood in verse 10 to necessitate that David here is writing to those sons of God that we read of in Genesis 6, right? The ones that came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. And some would say that David is calling those sons of God to repent and worship Yahweh. It's one way to understand it. Meanwhile, others would take the approach that David simply understands that his own individual praises to God are insufficient to rightly ascribe all that God is due. 
And therefore, he's calling upon even the hosts of heaven to join him in ascribing to God honor and glory. I'm not sure which way is right, but I think the best way to understand heavenly beings here is similar to that scene in Isaiah 6 in the throne room where angels surround the Lord and cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The entire earth is filled with his glory. This is the same state of worship and state of heart that David is now calling us to join. So let's pause just for a moment and consider, are you ascribing to the Lord glory and strength? Are you giving God the glory that is due His name? Are you worshiping the Lord in the splendor of holiness? Do His perfect attributes produce in you a desire to more completely and totally ascribe to Him all honor, all blessing, all glory? What does it mean that we're to ascribe or attribute to God glory? What does it mean? The word glory here literally means weight. It means that the glory of God is heavy. It's full of gravitas. It is weighty. God's glory is awe-inspiring. So to ascribe glory to God is to be completely enamored by His beauty, by His strength, by His love, by His holiness, by His patience with us. So I ask again, are you praising the Lord this morning? Perhaps one reason that we fail to offer right praise to God is because we've become inundated with the pursuit of accruing praise for our own selves. The Puritan Thomas Manton once said this, when we hunt after praise from men and make that the chief scope of our actions, God's glory will certainly lie in the dust. And then he references Babel and he says, the sin, that great sin of the old world was this. Let us make a name for ourselves. Our text this morning confirms that we ought not seek the praise of men, but totally give ourselves to the work, yes, but the joy of ascribing to God alone all the glory. Consider for a moment that God does not become glorious only after we ascribe to Him glory. This text isn't saying hey, you should ascribe to God glory so that He might have some. No, friends. He, he is glorious and has been glorious all on His own. That's why when we fail to rightly worship and glorify God, it's actually sin. It's the sin of theft. We are glory thieves as it's been said. When you fail to rightly worship God, rightly glorify God, you're actually stealing from God. Verse 2, ascribe to the Lord the glory, what? That is due His name. He has earned for Himself all glory, all honor, and all praise. And it is right for Him to receive all of it. So, 
How can we, by God's grace, seek to be improving in our efforts to bring appropriate praise to Him? How has David instructed in Psalm 29 us to stir up our affections for the glory of the King? He's given us two ways, two truths that are meant to produce awe and thanksgiving. And the first is this, that God is strong. Stronger than you can imagine. And the second is this, God saves His people even from the most unlikely and dire circumstances. So our main point, it's the only exhortation we see in the Psalms in verses 1 to 2, glorify the King. And why? Our first sub-point will help us see that He is strong. And that ought to produce in us praise to God. Let's read now verses 3 to 9 again. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Sarion like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in His temple all cry, Glory. So what we see in verses 3-9 to is the voice of the Lord, repeated seven times in this section, is producing and directing a violent thunderstorm. And David even tracks the the movement for us, right? The the tempest originates in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, verse 3, and it slowly crawls toward the coastline of Canaan. It makes landfall at Lebanon where its winds rage and it smashes those great cedars of Lebanon to bits. From there, the storm spreads further inland, beginning in the north and uh, heading due south causing whole countries and mountains to skip like a calf before it subsides, leaving us in a state of calm and quiet. And what's the response of the heavenly hosts at the sight of this magnificent and devastating storm? Verse 9, In His temple all cry, Glory! The chief goal of this storm is twofold. On the one hand, it's meant to produce praise and worship to God for those who are in His temple. On the other hand, it's meant to strike divine terror into the hearts of those who are outside of His temple. For those who are enemies of God, this storm serves as an image and reminder that there is soon coming a day when the floodgates of God's wrath will be opened upon them. The tempest described in verses 3-9 to is meant to portray the king's justice and produce the fear of God in men. Let's consider God's strength, that is our 
First subpoint, God's strong. Let's consider now his strength through judgment in verse 9, 3 to 9. Beginning in verse 3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. I don't know if you're like me, but if you are like me, you are horrified of really deep water. I'm cool with the beach, I'm cool with the pool, take me to the lake, that's great. But when you're in the middle of the ocean, I'm like, I just need to go lay down somewhere. I can't can't do this. I saw a video recently where there's this old merchant vessel that's intentionally being sunk to, I guess, produce some kind of like, what is it, like a reef or something for the sea creatures that are there? And the moment that the bow of that ship goes under the sea level. I'm just like sweating. Like what is happening? Where did it go? Where'd the boat go? (laughs) Storms are scary enough when they're on the land, but can you imagine a storm on the ocean? There's a special kind of terror that comes with a storm on the ocean. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. For those of you who are not in Christ, are you ready to meet with the God of the storm whenever you don't even have dirt to brace yourself? He plants his footsteps in the sea rides upon the storm. Verse 4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Charles Spurgeon said, the king of kings speaks like a king. As a lion roars, all the beasts of the forest are still, so it is with the earth when Jehovah thunders. The voice of the Lord is powerful and full of majesty. But like a lion, it is a fearsome and horrendous reality to be standing in front of the blast. Verses 5 to 6, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Sirion like a young wild ox. So the cedars of Lebanon are legendary. Think of Sequoia National Forest. Think of a redwood tree that's 40 or 50 feet in diameter. These trees were symbols of strength, prosperity. They're timber used to make ships, homes, idols. They were frames for temples to false gods. And Sirion, which is Mount Hermon, it's similar to the cedars in that it was understood to be as firm a foundation as the very crust of the earth. After all, who would understand that a mountain could be moved or could get up and walk away or could be tossed to and fro by the wind? But David here writes that the voice of Yahweh causes the cedars to be smashed to bits. He says that Sarion is made to skip or frolic. Like a young wild ox when the Lord says so. A mountain that boasts in 
permanence and resolute status as an immovable object is now subjected to find its footing like a young colt who's just been born. You want to know how strong God's voice is? Imagine a mountain that has wobbly knees because it doesn't know where to stand. This isn't meant to be understood simply as God's control over the map. The prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 2.17 concerning the judgment on the last day. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Here's a question. If you think of yourself as fine without God, Things are going fine so far. What do you make of this promise that the Lord will humble all of the proud on the last day? I pray you don't scoff at the question, that you consider the foolishness. This this text is teaching you that it's foolish to think that you'll stand on the last day. Verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes forth Flames of fire. Flames of fire here simply is referring to strong flashes of lightning. These lightning bolts strike the trees, they strike the plain, and in their wake, wherever they land, they leave a burning, smoldering, smoking fire that's disfiguring and marring everything in its path. Again, we're told by the prophet Isaiah, chapter 66, for by fire... Will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh? And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Verses 8 and 9 The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. Perhaps this expecting mother thought that she could hide from the storm in the forest. She thought that she could hide among the shadows of the trees. Maybe she'd sought refuge there in the past and had been able to ride out the tempest in relative comfort. But this storm is different. Friends, just like our parents in the garden, the leaves with which this deer sought to hide herself were insufficient. And the thunderous voice of the Lord reached her still, causing her to be very much afraid, so afraid that she actually went into premature labor at the horror of God's stormy wrath. Do you think, it's another question, do you think that your own tattered clothes of self-righteousness, works righteousness are enough to keep God from seeing you in your sin? Have you convinced yourself that, you know, God's holy? He's sure he knows everything. Uh, yeah, sure he has perfect justice, but he's not going to do anything that bad to me. What have I done that's so horrible? Have you fallen for that lie? One commentator here said, "There is no concealment from the fire glance of the Almighty." One flash of his angry eye turns midnight into high noon. Friends, there's no hiding from God. 
The storm described in verses 3 to 9 is meant to serve as a warning of the impending judgment of God. W.S. Plummer put it this way, it is fit that the revelations of wrath should be in tones of terror. We know from the Bible that there is soon coming a day when all of humanity will be judged according to their works and they will receive just repayment for their sins. And since all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, that means we are all standing on the coastline of Lebanon watching as the deluge of God's wrath is coming right for us. Is there any hope? To not be smashed like a Lebanese cedar? Is there any hope to not be stripped bare under the wrath of God like the forest of Kadesh? Or to be trampled by Sarayan? To quote R.C. Sproul, there is but one hope. And it is hope enough. We glorify the king because he's strong and because he saves. The Lord is strong in judgment, but he is also strong in salvation. We glorify him because he's strong and he saves. This is our final sub-point this morning. He saves. Verses 10 and 11. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. So like I mentioned earlier, verse 10, the flood there in verse 10 is a direct reference to the flood of Noah. That universal flood which God displayed his mighty strength and judgment to the entire world. But friends, that flood was not only a picture of judgment, it was also a picture of marvelous, unmerited, lavish mercy and grace for His people, was it not? Genesis chapter 6, verse 8 said that Noah, despite any works of his own, found favor in the eyes of God. Your Bible might say that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord who sat over the flood, the one who directed the flood waters of judgment over the whole earth, also did not fail to provide the means of protection and deliverance for Noah and his whole family. Friend, he's done the same for you. You're guilty, you're a sinner, you're standing on the coast watching the storm of God's wrath approach. And he's given you the opportunity to seek shelter in him. When God promised to judge the earth for her vast wickedness, he gave Noah insight and skill to create an ark that he might hide himself in and be saved on the day of judgment. In the same way, God has promised to judge the living and the dead on the last day. But he has not done so without also offering us his very body Jesus Christ as an ark in which we can hide ourselves. To borrow Thomas Brooks's language, Christ himself serves as an ark for all of God's Noahs. 
Friends, at Calvary, things did not go well for Christ so that they might go well for us. So that for His people, they would go well. His body was broken like a cedar so that we might be spared. His death, the the earth shook violently like we see here in the storm. Like the wilderness of Kadesh, he, after being scorned and mocked and spat upon, he was stripped as bare as the forests of Kadesh. All for love's sake. Why did he do this? Beloved, in the person of Jesus Christ, we see the very God of glory, the God of the storm that we've been Considering this morning, we see him become a man. The word of God, the voice of the Lord, the word of God has become flesh. And on the cross, he pays for all of the times that we've been found guilty of refusing to glorify God. But not only that, but he's given to us a storehouse filled with his own righteousness. He is the only man in history to perfectly obey verses 1 and 2. To ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. The glory do His name and to worship Him in the splendor of holiness. Friends, you and I have already failed to do that. There's no hope for us. But Christ Jesus, He did it. Perfectly without stain of sin. And to be marked safe in the face of this storm, to receive the benefit of Christ, all you must do is two things. Repent of your sin. Make no provision for sin. Repent and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation from all of your sins. And the Bible says that if you do those two things, He is Faithful and just and able and willing to do those things. To save you from your sin. Repent and believe this morning. Why? Because Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, love, and power. And if you do, you will begin to experience his strength No longer in judgment, but in wonderfully encouraging ways. The same strength of God that was once meant for your destruction has now been dispatched for your sanctification and eventually your glorification. Consider with me again those stormy verses in 3 to 9, but now let's just quickly consider God's strength and salvation. Because we know that every act of judgment is also an act of salvation. Verse 3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. Friend, did you not know that there is no human heart so unstable or so in opposition to the will of God that it cannot be made calm in an instant by God's voice? Like our Lord in the boat, peace, be still. So he does with the clamorous 
waves and restlessness in each heart that trusts him. Verse 4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Is there a more majestic and powerful means of grace that God has given us than that of his written word? His own revelation to us, 2 Timothy 3, reminds us that the writings are able to make us wise unto salvation in Christ Jesus. And not only that, they're profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that we might be equipped to do every good work. All of this he accomplishes by his word. His word is powerful and majestic. Verses 5 to 6, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Sirion like a young wild ox. And in the same way that the storm of God's judgment promises to humble the proud, the gospel provides hope that there is no human heart too dense or too set in its path that it can even for a second hope to refuse the call of God's electing love. Sing with the hymn writer. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. Friends, once the Lord calls us, He uses that fire, that flaming voice to fire a furnace that is refining us so that after enduring trials for a little while, we might have the dross of our sinfulness swept away. And what remains? Only that which pleases Him. Verses 8 to 9, The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. We noted earlier that it's futile to try and hide from God in His judgment. Friends, it's equally as futile to try and hide from God in His love. You may feel overlooked. You may feel undervalued, unappreciated, worthless, without purpose, undeserving of forgiveness, even if you've already received it in Christ. Look at verse 9, and you ought to be encouraged that if you're feeling any of those ways, man may not see you, but God sees you. Nothing escapes his sight. God sees you. And if you're fearful that he might not complete that which he's started in you, be encouraged again by our brother Spurgeon. Child of God, you cost Christ far too much for him to ever forget you. So friends, I just want to leave you with one question that I hope you ponder today and even in the weeks to come. This is how we'll close with this question. Will you presume wrongly upon the mercy of God 
and fail to ascribe him the glory due his name? And in so doing, will you forfeit your seat in the storm shelter, in the ark? Or will you, in faith and by God's grace, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength and worship him as king forever, finding all of your solace, all of your comfort, and all of your refuge in him. Let's pray.